Welcome to this podcast hosted by Nadina Doherty and myself, Hans Grellen, at the University of Sheffield School of Education. In this series of podcasts, members of the school and colleagues will be discussing their latest work and study in education. This series of thought-provoking podcasts will encourage a rethinking of taken-for-granted assumptions about the role of education in society, its mission and its effects. Have you got your coffee ready, Ansgar? I do. Okay, let's get started. In this podcast, I'm talking to Dr. Louise Kay, a lecturer in the School of Education at Sheffield. Louise researches in the area of early childhood education with a particular interest in curricula and assessment policy frameworks and how these impact on teachers and children. We will be discussing her paper titled Bold Beginnings and the Rhetoric of School Readiness, which was published in Forum, a journal that describes itself as the preeminent focal point for topical and informed analysis of all aspects of United Kingdom government policy as it influences the education of children from primary through to higher education. Louise, it's a pleasure to be speaking to you and to have the opportunity to discuss your work on the rhetoric of school readiness. I thought I might, it might be useful to explore the background to your area of research in particular for listeners who may not be familiar with the early years of schooling in England and the terminology that's used in this context. In the paper you discuss something called school readiness and this sounds like something to do with getting children ready for school, about preparing children for school in advance of them going there. But as your paper explains, this isn't quite the meaning of the term, is it? Could you explain what is meant then by school readiness? Okay, so school readiness is a term that is not specifically defined, uh, so there's no clear definition of what that actually means. Um, But the government um, uh, use an assessment construct called the good level of development to measure school readiness. So at the end of the reception year, um, children are assessed using the foundation stage profile. Um, Over the course of the early years, foundation stage children are taught uh, seven areas of learning Mm -hmm. uh, and they have to reach expected outcomes at the end of the reception year. So if children reach the expected outcomes in five of those seven areas of learning, uh, personal and social development, physical development, uh, communication and language, maths and literacy, then they are said to have reached the good level of development. And this is how the government measure whether children are school ready or not. Uh, The logical assumption when you talk to teachers and I think probably parents um, is that school readiness refers to the very first day children walk into reception which is the first day of a child's school Mm -hmm. career. Um, And the problem that arises is that the skills that are required to reach the good level of development are very different to the skills that teachers and, and parents want children to have when they walk through the door on that first day of school. So for instance, in my research, and also thinking about my own context as a nursery teacher, um, teachers want children on the first day of school to do, it's very much around personal and social skills and communication language. Mm -hmm. So for instance, being able to put their own coat on, being able to follow instructions, being able to leave their main carer, 
um, happily be able to co cooperate with other children mm -hmm. and obviously those are very different skills to the skills that are required at the end of reception where children are measured against those prescribed learning outcomes particularly in maths and literacy where children are expected to write sentences and to double and halve numbers. So what then happens is that every year around October time we get headlines such as um, two thirds of children are not ready for school and what the assumption is that from even from myself as someone who's researched in this area that that's referring to the first day of school and actually it's referring to the data that the government uses to measure school readiness. So there's a lot of problem areas that arise from that construct. Okay, thank you. So just to talk about the reception year itself, it's been traditionally positioned as the transition year between the early years curriculum and the more formal key stage one curriculum. What are for you the key differences between these uh, two curricula and what assumptions about education and about children and children's learning do these differences reflect? I think you've already started to unpack some of these. I was wondering if you could uh, say a little bit more about that. Okay, so the earliest foundation stage, as I've already said, is based on seven areas of learning. Uh, the other two areas of learning are expressive arts and understanding of the world. They aren't included in the, the assessment construct, the good level of development, right. which again is problematic in itself. Yeah. Um, so the children are taught in a very holistic way across the, the seven areas of learning through adult-led and child-initiated activities uh, through play-based pedagogy, so children have, opp have opportunities for free play, as well as direct instruction of some kind uh, from an adult. Uh, so there's very much, it's a continuum of, of different pedagogies almost, depending on what, what a particular child needs at a particular time. Mm. Um, what we find, in, in especially in an English context, is um, in a lot of schools, the transition into year one is the transition into the national curriculum where children are, dis are taught discrete subjects, so maths and literacy and science, RE. And also um, a very a shift away from that uh, play-based pedagogy to a, a much more formal way of teaching children. So often children are sat in tables uh, in groups, um, they are taught for an hour um, in you know, direct teaching and then group work. Uh, there's very limited opportunities in lots of, of year one classrooms for play. So we not only have a curricular transition, we also have a, a, an environmental transition, there's classrooms set up very differently and, and, a, and um, a pedagogical transition as well. So there's a lot of things that children are having to cope with as part of that transition. And I think for me, one of the, the key problems is that our children start school at a very young age in England. Um, we have a compulsory school starting age of five, but the reality for most children due to the September intake is at a school starting age of four. Mm. So, I'll, uh, the, the, the whole notion of the good level of development, uh, a lot of children are being assessed when they're still only four years old, I'll probably talk about that more in more depth later, but these children are still very young and they are expected to make that transition into quite a formal situation, a formal context at a very young age and some children are, are not ready for that transition. Um, some schools do uh, carry on um, teaching 
in the Nearly Years Foundation Stage style, so there will be con what we call continuous provision, which are resources that children can access mm -hmm. as, as part of their free play, such as like role play area, construction area. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of classrooms do shift to a very formal, mm. a formal teaching environment. When I was teaching, uh, when I started teaching in Year One, um, probably nearly 20 years ago now, the advice that we were given was that the Early Years Foundation stage pedagogy should be carried on till Christmas mm -hmm. to help children make that transition. And what we see now is, is the last term of the reception year, mm. children are being prepared for that formal context when they move into year one. So there has, has been a pushing down of, of outcomes and also expectations of children. Mm. And this is what's described as the schoolification of early years pedagogy. Uh, and it's not just to do with being school ready. In your paper you um, argue that this has been something which has been going on for a, a long time and that it's a, it's a concern. So what, what is schoolification then? So you've, you've indicated some of its features, but what, as a much broader phenomenon, uh, what is it? Uh, schoolification is uh, understandably a contested term. I think okay. schoolification sort of hints that it's a ne schools a negative thing, and it's you know school is important. Mm -hmm. Um, and we also maybe then need to examine what school is and what the purpose of school is. Mm. But the term itself is used to describe, and I think this is probably a useful way of thinking about it, the pushing down of outcomes from year one and year two sometimes into reception. So the expectation of children now, children are expected to do more than they were in, in the past. Um, certainly when I was teaching Year One. So for instance, um, now uh, when I was teaching Year One, we would have, be teaching children how to double and halve numbers. Mm -hmm. uh, this is now an expected outcome right. at the end of reception. So children not only have been taught this in reception, they will be expected to have reached that, that understanding of they, they know how to double and halve numbers. So as part of my research, I did look at outcomes across maths and, and literacy uh, to, to uh, examine you know which outcomes had been pushed down mm. and it was quite clear that so even some year two outcomes are now an expected outcome at the end of reception. The problem we have um, in, in reception is that children start school and we know this with a range of different abilities mm. um, and also a range of different lived experiences um, but as is quite common in the education system, these children, even though the foundation stage talks, the EYFS talks about the unique child, they are ultimately treated as a homogenous group right. who have to reach the same expected outcomes at the end of reception, regardless of where their starting point is. So for children, for instance, with English as an additional language, uh, a special educational need, summer-born children, uh, gypsy Roma children, they are the children that aren't achieving the good level of, or less likely to achieve the good level of development at the end of reception. Mm. Okay, so, so the term schoolification is quite, uh, is, is picking out certain aspects of schooling which are seen to be problematic. It's a privilege. What's happened is it's become a privileging of maths and literacy. Right. So because those outcomes are the most difficult to achieve, teachers are having to spend more time teaching right. those areas of learning to children. Okay. And my question is, what's happening? Is this at the cost of something else? Certainly in my research, this was definitely children were being pulled away from their free play experiences 
to, to especially those children who are at risk of not achieving the good level of development, interventions were put in place. So children who need those experiences were being taken away from them to, to because they were at risk of, of not achieving the good level of development at the end of reception. So yeah, the schoolification refers to that pushdown of formal outcomes, but also that privileging of maths and literacy. Right. Without understanding, really, that children will not we have to put foundations in place for children so for children to be able to write a sentence they first of all have to be able to verbalize a sentence mm. if they can't do that then it's going to be nigh on impossible for them to write that sentence to hear the sounds in the words and and then make that that letter shape on the piece of paper mm. so with regards to children's development, that is problematic when we're expecting children to do things that they're not developmentally ready for. Right. Now some of this, as you describe in your paper, is driven by Ofsted mm -hmm. and there's a specific report published by Ofsted in 2017 called Bold Beginnings, which is the focus of your paper. I was wondering if you could introduce that report and explain what in its own terms it set out to achieve. Okay, so the Bold Beginnings report uh, by Ofsted was a review of the reception curriculum um, and its aim was to provide a fresh insight into how the reception, reception curriculum was implemented and how it prepares children for the rest of their education and beyond. So okay. in other words... A fresh insight, that's interesting. A fresh insight, yes. Yeah, yeah it's yes, very loaded, <laughs> isn't it? Um, so basically, the Bold Beginnings report was about whether reception curriculum is preparing children for school. So it's all mm. around, again, the whole notion of the good level of development. Are children being prepared to meet the expected outcomes that the government used to measure school readiness? Mm. Okay. So in your uh, critique of this report, Bold Beginnings, you take an interesting approach. And this involves what you call rhetorical analysis. Could you explain what rhetoric entails, firstly, and then what it means to do rhetorical analysis in okay. this kind of context? Uh, so rhetoric um, is, is an, the act or the art of persuasion, so the way mm -hmm. of convincing an audience of a particular um, point of view. Uh, it's based on the work of Aristotle, and the, there are, there's, it's, it's a, a wider framework than I, I chose three aspects of rhetoric. Uh, pathos, which is the capacity of the speaker to appeal to the emotions of the audience. Mm -hmm. Logos, which is the way the evidence of proof is presented. Okay. And ethos, which is the uh, credibility of the speaker or, or the writer in this instance. And I examined the way the text was constructed to present the narrative of school readiness okay. um, as a justification for the fur further formalisation of, of early childhood education. Okay, thank you. So you're looking at three things then. You're looking at how these texts appeal to the emotions, how they present so-called evidence of proof, and how they assert and maintain the credibility of the speaker of the text. All right. Could you give some examples of each of these? in yeah. bold beginnings. Okay, so with regards to pathos, which is okay. about appealing to the, uh, the emotions of the audience, um, a lot of discourse around early childhood focuses on the, the, this education uh, or this particular way of educating children as a way of improving their life chances. There's a very uh, dominant narrative around reducing the attainment gap between disadvantaged children and their more affluent peers. Mm -hmm. And early childhood is often seen as a panacea, um, a way of breaking the cycle of poverty. So mm -hmm. if we invest in children at a very early age, 
uh, we will break that cycle of poverty and see a return on our investment. Um, which the, the terms you use are already interesting, like investment. Yeah. It's a narrative of economies that runs through yeah. most uh, policy, po policy discourses mm. around early childhood. Mm. And this becomes what, um, a hegemonic common sense, yeah. which is difficult to criticise, mm. um, because if we criticise that, we are saying that we have low expectations of children and of the disadvantaged in okay. particular. So that's how that kind of criticism would be interpreted from yes. a dominant point of view. Yeah, right. yeah. So if, if we criticise, uh, you know, we are we don't want the best for for those those children, um, which is very difficult. Mm -hmm. um, the logos uh, in Bell Beginnings uh, again, the language that Bell Beginnings uses, uh, the dominant narratives are around giving children a head start into key stage one. Mm -hmm. um, there's a huge focus on maths and literacy um, within the report. Uh, language use uh, typically, children are equipped to meet the challenges of year one, they're prepared for the demands of year one. So, this is the language that's right, used okay. in Bell Beginnings. Um, it Bell Beginnings constructs a particular argument which gives maths and literacy promin prominence, so mm -hmm. things like phonics is critical, uh, reading is at the heart of the curriculum, which, is, which was a very, very controversial and contentious statement to make. Um, and because the report is endorsed, the, the, the report was written, uh, have to go and speak into, I think it was 20 schools who had received a good or outstanding rating at Ofsted. Mm -hmm. So this is endorsed by head teachers in schools who have achieved the the rate the grading that every school wants. Right. And there we get the ethos that Ofsted is a very powerful mm. organisation. Uh, ratings or gradings Ofsted gradings are a major preoccupation for schools. Mm. So Bull Beginnings presents uh, the ideal this is what the good and outstanding skills are doing, mm -hmm. and that becomes a very powerful discourse and one that would be difficult to ignore for other head teachers. So, other te head teachers then will look at this report, right. see what good and outstanding skills are doing, and we know this is happening, and then start to implement those practices um, within their own settings as well. So, you get this circular discourse where Oster defines what quality is and then uses this as a measure. Of quality, right? So it defines what what it thinks quality is. It goes and, and it goes finds on. examples of that, and yeah. then that becomes the evidence yes. base for the report. Yeah, and that's circular in, in that manner, right? Okay. Um, so in your paper, you're obviously very critical of all, all of this, and you draw attention to some obvious frictions between the privileging of maths and literacy and traditional philosophies that underpin pedagogy in the early years foundation stage and you've already been describing some of these frictions and they're reflected in classroom practices as, as you've already been explaining uh, you've mentioned I think free play which includes free flow between the indoor and outdoor classroom and you say that this is frowned upon in the report as offering, and here I'm quoting you quoting the report, as offering a rosy and unrealistic view of childhood, these notions of free play, free flow and so on. I think it's, it would be really interesting to understand a bit more about how a report such as Bold Beginnings achieves that effect. How does it, or does it, manage to ignore what seem to be quite obvious frictions? Um, does it disregard them? and marginalise other points of view within that report itself, do you think? And, and if so, how, 
how does it how does it achieve that effect through its kind of rhetorical uh, construction? Um, there's been an increase in uh, over the past probably ten years an increasing formalization through the good level of development. The good level of development is a very powerful um, construct. A lot of teachers, uh, well all teachers, reception teachers will, their performance is measured mm -hmm. on the ch children achieving the, the good level of development. So it becomes a, a, a tool of performativity and also accountability um, and it's very powerful. So this increase in formalisation probably stems from the, the performative nature of the good level of development. But I also think, and this is probably slightly controversial, that, that it's an ideological push right. that, that spans beyond, I think, the early years is not immune to what happens in the rest of the education system. Mm -hmm. So I think Nick Gibb, who is heavily influenced by Hirsch, um, who's pushed for a knowledge-based curriculum. Mm -hmm. um, nobody disagrees that knowledge is something that is fundamental to education, but there is m more than knowledge that we need to be teaching children. But Gibbs' um, influence of Hirsch, we see this coming through in other ways as well, through um, the current idea around cultural literacy, mm -hmm. uh, cultural capital, as Ofsted referred to it, mm -hmm. um, which is, a, a, again, a Hirsch concept. Um, so this idea of knowledge and being fundamental, it's an, it's an ideology that's driven by a school minister, the school's minister, mm. and this, I believe, is, is, is also plays a part in this increase in formalisation of mm. early childhood education. Mm. So it's an ideological push. I think Ofsted are also, um, even though they declare themselves to be independent, okay. uh, we can see it playing out that they have also are influenced by this ideology mm. um, and Bell Beginnings is suggesting that this is as I've already said the best way to teach and it's a very difficult a very powerful discourse which is difficult to ignore but also the other issue is that early childhood um, educationalists academics teachers practitioners people who work in the sector are very vehemently opposing what is happening, mm. but are consistently ignored, mm. uh, which again, you know, is an act of marginalisation. It's a mainly feminised fem workforce. Mm. So, you know, it, it, there are some successes against pushbacks, such as the one with the when the ratio, which I won't go into now, and the ratio the government wanted to increase the ratios. Uh, which ratios? The ratios of adult to child. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. Um, as a way of, again, it was through a narrative of economies. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the early childhood community is often ignored within policy making decisions. Mm. Interesting. Does that answer the question? There was quite a lot in that one. It does. It does. Um, I just want to focus now on one of the last points you make right at the end of your paper, where you talk about school readiness as being problematic when England has such a young school starting age yeah. compared with other countries. Mm -hmm. Could you explain why this is also something we should be concerned about? Okay, so I've already spoken about the reality for most children is a school starting age of four. Some children are assessed against these outcomes at the age of four when they shouldn't actually legally be, ex be in school. Right. That's the expectation is 
you know, they, they, they don't have to be in school, yet they're being assessed. So why are they there? Just, just oh, for uh, people because who aren't familiar with this, this system? The, the system we, we have is a September intake, yeah. and it's pretty much across the board that we only have one intake. That's not yeah. always been the case, but now most children will start school in September. Yeah. So that means in May, when the assessment takes place, some children are still only four. They've got June, July, August to be five, to mm. turn five. Um, we know that um, summer-born children even under, not underperform, they don't perform as well as their autumn-born peers, even at GCSE level, so mm. this is a pattern that continues. So we have a, a situation where, so say for instance, it makes complete sense to me that say 75% of children achieve the good level of development and 25% don't. You can almost see the 25% you know, some children haven't even reached, some children are a year older mm. than other children and they're being assessed against the same outcomes. Mm. Um, some summer-born children, this is, the, what I'm talking about is particular groups of children who are less likely. Mm. We, and we know this from the data. The data we get from the foundation stage profile is very, very detailed. Mm. So the children that aren't, uh, or don't, are less likely, I've already said, um, summer-born children, the AL children. SEN children, boys. So EL is English is an additional language. Special educational needs, and the Gypsy Roma and Traveller community yeah. are less likely. And my argument, based on my research, is that the good level of development is reductionist, and it further marginalises these already disadvantaged groups of children right. because what happens is the good level of development creates this binary of readiness and unreadiness. So children who have um, got the outcomes, managed to meet the expected outcomes, are ready for school and children who haven't mm. are not ready. We also have a problem it could be that a child has not met one outcome. So, for instance, the one children find most difficult across the board is to write a sentence, a phonetically plausible sentence. Okay. So it could be that they haven't met that one outcome, but they are fantastic on their personal social development, they're creative, you know, they're completely ready to move into year one in every other way. Yeah. They just haven't met that one outcome, yet they are still defined as not meeting the good level of development and therefore are unready for school. Mm. Um, so these children, these groups of children are moving into year one at five years old in an already deficit position. Mm. Um, so the, the, I need to explain as well around the early years foundation stage profile. If children meet the good level of development, we know they've met particular outcomes. Yeah. For children who haven't met the good level of development, there is no data to say what they can and can't do. Okay. They are classed as emerging, which doesn't actually tell the teacher anything, that the year one teacher, okay. anything about what they can actually do, mm. or the progress that they have made mm. are at from the, the beginning of reception to the end of reception. So. We don't measure progress, we measure attainment. So a child could have come into reception speaking no English and by the end of reception be proficient in you know, um, speaking English. They've made massive progress, but that's not reflected in the good level of development. So we have children who start year one in this deficit position. We know that Alice Bradbury, who's an academic, uh, she's done work around groupings. So when children are grouped on ability, which happens usually in year one, sometimes in reception as well, 
that she's done work around children who are in lower ability groups, it, then it becomes this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, and my an argument or, or question is, do children ever catch up? So I want to know what happens in year one for these children who start that year one in five years old in already a deficit position. Um, again, the school starting age, I think if we had a school starting age of six or seven, which is more in line with the rest of the world, a lot of the problems that we see in our country would be min would be reduced because children are that little bit older and, and more developmentally ready for some of the things that we're asking them to do. As part of my research, um, the pressure that teachers were put under to uh, get children to the good level of development, uh, the pressure, they, they talked about children crumbling, especially over aspects of literacy, such as writing. Um, one teacher said she felt like the Wicked Witch of the West when she was forcing children to do this, these more instrumental, technical skill uh, outcomes. So we know, my own research, it was, it, like I've already said, it was so powerful. It, it, it just encompassed everything that they did, the good level of development was just there everywhere they had to get these children and that's problematic yeah definitely i can see that so your research is raising all sorts of critical issues um could keep you busy for a very long time i imagine what are you working on now or what comes next um so uh, my key argument i've already said is about the good level of development i do adopt a very critical approach to it i understand other perspectives that parents find data data useful it is useful i'm not saying that data isn't useful we need data mm. but what i am interested in is the way that data is used to position children within that context um, and the impact that has on children and on teachers and, all, and I haven't done any work on parents, other people have but also a lot of the, the issues around school readiness there's, you know, again, especially through media a lot of the blame is placed on parents as well um, so it's, yeah, it's a hugely problematic area I want to know, I want to look at year one I want to do some research around the groups of children that are going up into year one having not met the good level of development. Mm -hmm. I want to see what that's like for them, what that change, that what the, all those transitions that I talked about earlier on, the curricular, pedagogical and environmental transition, what that's like for them, um, you know, and, and whether they do ever catch up mm. with the, 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 the peers who, are, you know, reach the good level of development. Um, so definitely more work around transition into year one. Okay. And also we look at readiness a lot. L readiness is, is a very dominant word around, and not only for school, children starting school, but are, ch are student work ready or mm. university ready. But with regard to school readiness, I, I sometimes think, what should we be looking at the school part as well? Mm. You know, what does that mean? And thinking about what you said about schoolification and people have problematized this the phrase schoolification and that being almost negative so I think there's probably more that needs to be unpicked on that as well Good. well I look forward to reading your work as it comes out thank you thank you very much thank you thanks